doubt is not the enemy of faith. Certainty is the enemy of faith, uh, because faith naturally has has a pliability to it, right? There's 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 a space to it. There's a mystery that's involved with faith because there's a there's an aspect to it that is unknown. But certainty, there's nothing unknown within certainty, right? And if if that's our faith, then it's, then we don't actually have faith. We have an idol because there's no room for us to change our minds about God. Nate Piles, my friend, he's also a pastor in Fishers, Indiana, and he's walked through tragedy in his own life. Uh, professional uncertainty, the intense impact of mental illness, and the struggle to build a family after infertility. Uh, as a pastor, he has cried with so many people who are experiencing deep and overwhelming pain. And when they get uh, cliches like, God won't give you more than you can handle, it's very unhelpful and even damaging. So in Nate's new book, More Than You Can Handle, he tells lots of stories about his own grief, his own pain, and we had a great conversation about cliched Christianity and also the hope that comes when we are given the freedom to wrestle with questions, doubt, and we can build our faith on a more solid reality. So enjoy this conversation with Nate Pyle, and then go out and get his new book, More Than You Can Handle. Well, my friend Nate Pyle, how are you, Nate? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm good. It's, it's, it's spring here, finally. In Minneapolis. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's making me feel good. Um, it feels and, so good. We had a spring rain shower last night. I just feel, yes. it feels amazing. Uh and so, Nate, we haven't done the podcast since your last book. So, I mean, we've connected. Um, but I want to dive right in because this book, More Than You Can Handle, I think is so good. And it's going to be, it's going to raise so many good, I think, questions for people that are going through whatever their struggle is. So, um, in the acknowledgments you write, and I love this part, um, you said you had to go through... Uh, like a process of feeling like, well, like, who am I to write about pain? My pain hasn't been profound enough uh, uh, yeah. to really write about. And, and, and that struck me as so honest, but also like, I want more people that think like that to write these kinds of books because <laughs> it's where, uh, you know, I live for sure. So can you talk more about that process you had to go through and sort of even being honest about that? Yeah. So, I, I mean, and I think this is something that we all go through, but my wife and I, we went through definite times of suffering, right? We, we struggled through infertility and then she experienced an ectopic pregnancy, which simply means that the uh, embryo didn't make it into the uterus, but it was in the fallopian tubes. And so that that we had to end that pregnancy uh, for the for the well-being of my wife, uh, and it wasn't a viable yeah. pregnancy, right? And so, so like, there's this pain, and there's this moment. Like, we had been suffering through infertility, and we had been hoping and praying for this child, and then all of a sudden, here they are. Like, we now have hope because we get the positive on the pregnancy test, and that hope is dashed, and we have to make this really difficult decision on ending this pregnancy, which goes against a bunch of values and and all of that sort of stuff gets tossed in the middle of that. And so, it's this really disorienting time of like, God, what are you doing, God? what's up uh this 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 loss of hope and this wondering if if that hope is ever going to be realized 
And, and so like there's absolutely suffering and pain there. And I can find somebody else who I would say, oh, well, they've suffered more, right? Like I, I can point to people who I know of who, who carried that child to, to term and yeah. then delivered stillborn, right? And they for held sure. that child and or held them for just a few moments and then the child passes away. And you could say, well, that child, that that's actually more so like a, a, a deeper or a, a more acute kind of pain and suffering. And so who am I to write a book when I can point to those people or somebody else who has quote unquote suffered more. And I think that this is what we do with, with suffering and pain. We always try to find, or we don't try, but we very naturally find somebody who, who we can say is, well, has a, has a greater right to claiming that they are going through something difficult and can, uh, uh, yeah, expound on suffering that, you know, like there's just always somebody who's suffered more than we have. There's, it's, it's a weird game that we play. It is a weird game. And I think I'm on one level. Sure. If, if someone is so self-absorbed that they, they aren't aware of other people's suffering, then maybe that's a good exercise of perspective. But I think like you're saying, I found for most of us, we actually need to do the opposite and, and to say that my pain is my pain my my experience is my experience and if god wants to meet me anywhere it's going to be in my experience not in somebody else's experience right and totally. so I, that that's and that's part of what i love about about your book is it's essentially among many many other things but it's permission to dive into your personal struggle and meet god there not in the clichés not in the should it should have gone this way or what if it went that way, but in the actual disappointment and suffering of whatever you're going through. Yep. Um, yep. What actually got me thinking, okay, you know, beyond the well, I can find somebody who suffered more and they should write this book was the thought that by playing that comparative game, we we ultimately are disassociating ourselves from our own humanity, right? Yes, yes. We, we, we might be saying, well, uh, I don't have to really grieve or I shouldn't grieve, right? But we somehow like we're distancing ourselves from the pain and the grief and the, and, and the frustration, despair, whatever it might be. We're distancing ourselves from those very human emotions mm -hmm. by pointing and saying like they have a better right to that. So I'll let them do that. And then I'm just going to cover it all over, grit my teeth and get through this, um, which, which both di uh, it, it, it disassociates us from our own humanity, but it also disassociates ourselves from another's humanity. So if yes. I actually press into my pain, whatever it is that I'm feeling, then I actually have a better ability down the road to connect with somebody else. Even though, even though the circumstances surrounding our pain may be more, di more, uh, maybe difficult. What's the same is, is like grief is grief, right? And, and loss is loss. And so whether it's the loss of a pregnancy versus the, 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 the loss of a job, like, we can relate in the fact that we've lost something. We've had something that gave us some sort of grounding in the in the world, some sort of security, some sort of hope. And now that thing is being taken away from us. And so it, it, part of this book was me actually saying, no, no, I'm going to press into my humanity. I'm going to press into these things, uh, not just for my own healing, partly that, uh, but also so that I can actually connect with other people and, and meet them in the midst of their pain. Man, I think that is so... Um... That's just, there's a simplicity to that, but there's just such a deep wisdom to that. And I know, Nate, like me, you're a pastor. And so we end up spending quite a bit of time listening to folks, right? And, but, but, but if, if we haven't dealt with our own suffering, our own grief, 
then we probably are going to give people unhelpful cliches, right? Totally. Um, we, 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 and, and so, and, and no one wants or needs a listener, a listening presence that, um, that is going to essentially dismiss their own grief and pain. Um, and I, th so I think you're right. I mean, I think the only, or, or one of the benefits of dealing with your own pain is that you can more helpfully be a presence for others. I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, you write about the journey with adoption, the journey of, um, oh man, the, the pregnancy loss, but talk a little bit more about how your own journey of disappointment has shaped your writing of this book and feel free to just, you know, not just around, um, well, feel free to, feel free to answer that however you want to. Uh, cause I think that's, that's central sort of dealing with disappointment, um, on small levels and, and, and greater levels. How, yeah. how, how did that shape the writing of this book? Well, I think what it forced me to do is confront the fact that I had disappointments. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, quite honestly, as you said, I'm a pastor. And so uh, there's a sense in which I feel the need to perform into the role of a pastor, which yeah. is to say that I have to have all the answers. Uh, God has had, you know, has to have solved all my problems, or if He hasn't, that I've somehow find it, found some supernatural peace, accepting whatever lot may have come my way, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 then have answers for, you know, the circumstances that that I find myself in in a in a way that I don't know makes sense, and and so. As an Enneagram three, I'm assuming your listeners, because I know you, yeah, so yeah, I'm assuming yeah. your listeners have some interaction with the Enneagram. As an Enneagram three, uh, is very important for me to be perceived in that way. And so there's a very much of an aspect to my personality that's performative. Um, and so writing this was actually a way in which I stay connected with my disappointments and my frustrations, both uh, in terms of how my life was turning out, right? My family life wasn't coming together in the manner which I thought it would, right? Uh, I thought <laughs> naively so that my wife and I would be married happily for f five to six years and then we would decide to have children and 10 months later we would have a child on the scene. Uh, and it just, <laughs> and, and it, and, and, and it just, it wasn't that way at all. And so this frustration of sort of, I, I, I use the metaphor in the book a lot of, of suburban, right? Mm -hmm. I start right out in the book of using this idea of suburban where when you think about suburban neighborhoods, they're well-planned, they're well-curated to provide efficiency and comfort and security all in a small geographical region. And, and in a lot of ways, that was my life. My life was very suburban. It was very planned out. It was very curated. Uh, and dealing with infertility and some of the problems we had around pregnancy uh, began to shatter that and shatter it in such a way that I couldn't pretend that my life was curated and I was in control of my life as much as I wanted to be. And so that I had some disappointment there. And the same could be true of my faith and my relationship with God, that I had disappointment that here I'm doing all these things. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor and I'm praying for things. My wife and I are hoping and we're trusting and all of this. And yet it doesn't seem like God doesn't seem to be act, uh, to be, to be responding. Um, uh, the, the, the verse that I resonated, like my life verse during this period of time was from Job, Jab, I think it's Job 31, uh, where Job says, I stand here and all you do is look at me. Yes. Right. And so like that, that's sort of how I feel in this disappointment of God, not stepping in and God, not, uh, giving me the life that I was, was hoping for. And, and, and then that my faith maybe wasn't, wasn't the, the, the thing that gave me the sense of security and, 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 um, 
Oh yeah. It just, yeah. it just, it, all of that just got, it was just very frustrated. I was very disappointed and, and had a point at, you know, during, not during the writing process, it was right before the writing process where I had to acknowledge a deep sense of anger that I had towards God and how that was my affecting my relationship. And so part of the writing for me was just, uh, living in that, acknowledging that and wrestling through that. Like, what am I going to do with this, this disappointment? How am I going to handle it? Am I going to brush it away or am I going to be honest about it in a way that is truly authentic and hopefully bring something new? Uh, some sort of new kind of intimacy, both with others and with God. Yeah. Nate, do you, do you ever, like, I mean, just in that, in that beautiful run you just did, you know, this, this being upset at God and also facing our own desire to control our lives. I mean, but, but, but I know you, you are smart enough and you have journeyed with God long enough. Do you ever get, do you ever get like stuck in the cul-de-sac of like, I do feel this way about God. I feel like God is not showing up. I feel like God is not answering my prayer. You know, but then you go, but I know I'm not supposed to control God. I'm not supposed, <laughs> you know, right? Um, right. So, so okay. So it's 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 really not. I mean, so it's you know, I have to lay that down. But I think when we get stuck in sort of that cul-de-sac of of um, overindulging our brains in that versus just really being upset. And being okay with like saying, yeah, this is this doesn't seem fair. I, I and I am mad when we try to rationalize. Well, I know I shouldn't be mad because God doesn't work that way. Blah blah blah. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, do you, yeah, do, totally. do you ever get stuck there? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, because I, I think as a pastor. As someone who has gone to seminary and studied theology and is very, very much geeks out on theology and that sort of stuff, like I have this, this, this whole file cabinet full of theological, theologically correct information about right. God and about how I'm supposed to respond to God. And then I've got just myself and my messy self and this functional belief that actually does exist and then my, and, and my experiences. And those things don't always talk nice to each other. And so the, I do feel like I'm either in a cul-de-sac or there's a little battle going on inside of me between the difference, you know, between what I know mm -hmm. intellectually and what I'm experiencing. Uh, and so those two things are often at battle with each other. Um, and, and I think what, what we've done in the past is we've lost the um, – I think we've lost some value around the experience, right? Like our experiences yeah. actually matter. And, yes. and the, the, the intellectual theology is really good, but it should never be divorced from our experience. In some ways they form inform each other. And, uh, and, and I think it's when we, when we divorce ourselves from our experiences so much, uh, that, you know, all of a sudden the pain and the frustration, like we've got to sweep it under the rug or that's where our cliches come from. That's mm -hmm. where all of a sudden we start saying, well, when God closes a door, he opens a window and you know, it's just like, I'm in a room right now that has no windows and no doors. Like that's yes. just my yeah. Or, you know, we God won't give you more than you can handle. Suck it up. Like, it's just like, that's where I think we really have to reimagine what it looks like to have a faith that is fully embodied in the human experience. Well, let's get into that cliche because it's the title of your book, right? Um, yeah. You know, sir, it, there, there is this idea that somewhere in the Bible, and, it's, and we hear it all the time, is 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 this phrase that God won't give you more than you can handle? So break that down for us, if you would. Sure. Okay. So there's the phrase. Uh, people, if you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard it, uh, and hopefully no one has said it to you, but it's it's possible. <laughs> uh, 
and and it comes from first corinthians paul's talking about temptation it's very clear and he says that god won't give you more than you he doesn't say more than you can handle but that he says you, you won't be given more than what you can stand up underneath of essentially so you won't be tempted beyond your means that's what he's going after in first corinthians but what's fascinating about that so people point that and say well that's where that comes from and that's why it's biblical well no not at all because if that were true then paul himself is not biblical because in second corinthians chapter one paul's talking about all the trials that they've had they've had endured in his missionary journeys and he said we've endured so many trials that we despaired of life itself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so he's so so he's obviously got more than he can handle yeah like that's just and, and so the, the the insidious thing and the thing that enrages me as a pastor is how like now we're talking about intellectual theology, but how bad the theology of God won't give you more than you can yeah. handle is because what it's saying is, is you have to handle whatever it is you're going through. Mm-hmm. If you're going through it, then one, God, God either gave it to you or God allowed it. Mm-hmm. You got to take it one of those two things. God gave it to you. God allowed it. And God did so because he knew that he didn't have to step in on your behalf. You've got, you are the one that has to do that. And if you feel like you can't, then that means either your faith isn't strong enough or that you're just doubting or, or somehow you're failing. And that's just plain asinine. Like, that's not the point of that. That's not the point of anything in the gospels, uh, that we see. The, the point isn't that, uh, uh, you know, there is that you can handle everything. The point is that you can't, right. that's, that's the point is that you can't handle it and that you need God to step in on your behalf. And so that phrase just, it drives me up a wall as a pastor. Oh, Cause I just crazy. think it puts people it puts people in a bad place and it, and it begins to shame them and it begins to uh, cause them to, dis- to despair, not just about their situations, but about them. Like, I'm a failure. I'm doing this wrong. I don't have enough faith. Uh, therefore, that's why all this is happening. Yeah. And I think it, like you said earlier, it that glib phrase divorces people of their actual lived and human experience of whatever pain they're going through, whatever suffering or loss uh, that is essentially saying, nah, it's not that bad. Um, right. You, right. You know. Like, like, can we just, can we be honest about the fact that Paul, the guy who we say can rejoice in every situation has learned to be content no matter what, whether he's got a lot or a little, that this guy says life got so hard, we despaired of it. Mm-hmm. Like that just is unbelievably freeing to me to go like that actually exists. Like there's a model for what there's multiple Bible. I mean, the Bible's full of models of people who embrace embraced the full bodied experience of being human beings in a world where we experience suffering. But like Paul himself, who we would say is like the one who embodies being able to rise above and transcend whatever circumstance he finds himself in, says, no, 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 I despaired of life. It was really, really hard. Well, and isn't it, I mean, even a, even a cursory reading of the garden where Jesus is, whether it's metaphor or not, sweating drops of blood and saying, I don't want to do this. Um, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. I mean, that's essentially the same thing. He's saying, this is, this is more than I can handle. Um, but I will, I will press into this if, if I need to. Um, but it's not because he can handle it. It's because of his love for the father. Right. So in in his love for us. So, but I think even like you, you brought up Job and that beautiful, (laughs) I totally forgotten that. Like I I talk and talk to you and you just look at me and you don't say anything. That's such a great, but it's so, because how many of us haven't felt that, right? How many of us, 
we've, we've all felt that we're like, oh, like, okay, I know you can see everything. Like if you're, if you're sovereign, you see what's happening and you're not doing anything. You're just looking at me. I, it just, yeah. It's beautiful. It, I mean, it is. But I think like when, when people read the first chapter of Job and they read that fanciful, whatever that is, that conversation between God and, and, and the Satan, and essentially they, they make bets and they make deals and you could misapply that kind of weird, odd preamble to the story and say, well, that's exactly what that story is all about. That, that, you know, God says to Satan, well, you just, you just, you just lay whatever, uh, pain and suffering onto Job that, that you want to, but, but I'm, I'm telling you, he can handle it. Right. Uh, I mean, I mean, that's a terrible reading of it, but I think that's how most people read it versus, um, sort of this understanding that listen part of what i think the writer is 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 getting at is job had does not have the perspective that we are given even though it's really weird all yeah, job yeah. knows is his life has is starting to suck that that's all he knows he doesn't know why he doesn't have any clue about this weird conversation between god and satan however that happened you know, and so it's it's how do we deal with grief and pain and loss? And then, right, th those three idiots come in and and basically tell him it's his fault. You know, he, right, totally. he should have been able to handle it. So um, anyway, so I, I mean, I think there's many, many examples in the scriptures that that would speak to God is always <laughs> meeting us in those places where it's more than we can handle. Totally. And and. And and you're right. I, there's so much I could say about the Book of Job. I've I've fallen in love with it over the last yeah. couple of years. Um, but one, I want to say, I think that Job has the faith that so many of us have when things get difficult, mm -hmm. where we're we do we enter into this sort of questioning series point with God, where we're just like, okay, did I do something? Right. That Job mm -hmm. has this whole back and forth of like, did I do something? And and in fact, he doesn't. I, he he actually says, I'm more righteous. He kind of alludes God. I think I'm more righteous than you. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> so I've held up my end of the bar. And it, bargain and this is what I get like if this is what you send to people who are righteous then does that make you righteous right, like that's right. the, the whole thing and so he has a very transactional understanding of faith and so the I think the best way to read Job is actually a deconstruction of faith yes. that Job and Satan actually have the same faith Wow. So, so Job has this understanding and his, like the 38 chapters where he's questioning his God is mm -hmm. I was a righteous and moral person. And yet all of this came to me. That is not how things are supposed to work. And Satan has the thing of, it's the same faith. It's just kind of mirrored just a little bit differently, but he, he's saying, God, the only reason Job is worshiping you is because you've blessed him, take mm -hmm. it away and he'll curse you. Like it's the same sort of transactional type of faith. I do good. I get good. I'm, you know, I bless you. You bless me. That's that type of thing. Uh, and it, the, the whole deconstruction of, the, of Job's faith is where he goes, no, 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 it's not that way at all. It's actually God's uh, God's relationship towards me, right? And this is where he, he has this discovery of faith where he says, uh, I've heard of you, but now I see you because I see that you, you, you actually are in control of all of this. You're watching over this. You're intimately involved. You're redeem and restore. And I'm not sure how it all works. And, and we never get an explanation. Job never gets an explanation. Explanation, but he, he gets the presence of God, which, which is different than the type of faith he had before. 
Well, I'd never, I mean, I've never heard anyone say that essentially Job has the same faith that, that the Satan has. And that is, I, I love that, um, that, that will preach. But on that, I think, um, let's, let's talk about, uh, questions and doubting and faith and certainty, because I think when anyone gets into it, in, into there's, there's layers of grief, right? So there's sort of the acceptance of it, but then when you do start questioning, I think you can be surrounded by people who kind of get threatened by your questions. Maybe you yourself get threatened by your own questions and you feel like you're maybe losing your faith and maybe you are, maybe you need mm -hmm. to, but mm -hmm. talk about how you think about that relationship between faith and doubt and certainty and mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think people have heard many times, but it, it bears repeating in the age that we live. Uh, doubt is not the enemy of faith. Certainty is the enemy of faith. Yeah. Uh, because faith naturally has has a pliability to it, right? There's 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 a space to it. There's a mystery that's involved with faith because there's a there's an aspect to it that is unknown. But certainty, there's nothing unknown within certainty, right? Like it's it's it goes beyond just mere confidence. It's it's there's there's an unchangeability and un, a, 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 a concreteness to certainty. And if if that's our faith, then, it's, then we don't actually have faith, right? We, mm -hmm. we have an idol because there's no room for us to change our minds about God, right? If we're certain about who God is, then God can only ever be that. There's, right. there's no room to grow in understanding. There's no room to, to be presented with, with a different kind of God. And if God were to present himself in a, in, a, in a way that we do not expect because it doesn't fall within our predetermined, this is for certain the way God is, uh, then we miss God, which is probably why a lot of people missed Jesus when he was on earth is he didn't fall within that. And so, so certainty I, I think can often become a, an, an idol. Um, and, and I think that the relationship between certainty and doubt within the church, uh, in Western America in particular, and I just speak to that cause it's our context mm -hmm. is that the church often there's a pressure people feel within the church to be certain about aspects of their faith. So who God is, who Jesus is different, you know, theological tenets or whatever. Um, and that pressure simply comes from an anxiety and it could be from within a person, but a lot of times it's from others because doubt raises the questions and doubt makes people uncomfortable and doubt pushes against the edges of what we were confident in. And that produces anxiety within people. You know, crises of faith are called crises because they're uncomfortable and they're unsettling and they do feel a little bit like you're out on an ocean in a storm in a small dinghy. And mm -hmm. uh, nobody likes that. And so I think that doubt gets a bad rap and and gets gets and, and people get shamed for having doubt uh, simply because uh, it makes people so uncomfortable. Um, but man, that I mean, the Israelites and the name Israel means those who struggle. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> I mean, that's that's I, I, our faith should have some struggle to it. It should have some doubt to it. Well, I I oh yeah, and th this is where I think when you read the Bible, actually, you just see time after time again, people have to sort of transcend an old way of thinking about God, so that they can live into a new experience of either great love or great suffering. Um, that's the, you know, as Richard Rohr says, those are kind of the two gateways to an understanding 
of God that that can keep growing. And I think mm-hmm. I think you're right on the money. I think because it creates anxiety in people, we tend to resist. Um, we tend to resist out. I I also wonder, Nate, and tell me what you think about this. Like in the world of sort of psychological human development, as as you you know evolve into greater and greater consciousness of how things are in the world, and the more you suffer, really the less answers you have. Mm-hmm. But but if you're talking with someone who is in a sort of a later stage of development than you, it can be threatening, you know, mm-hmm. like it really, because all of a sudden you start questioning, you have no, you know, because if they have an, a more expansive view, then you start questioning everything that you have believed. And and I, so I, I, I think that's part of the anxiety, right? Mm, yeah, totally. If, if I'm wrong, if my tribe is wrong, if, if the way I grew up was wrong, then it's sort of the house of cards, right? And that, that card gets pulled out and it all comes crashing down. Then I feel like I've been lied to. And I've even seen people get angry um, mm-hmm. when, you know, at, at, their, at their tribe for not telling them the truth. Um, right, right. right? And so, yeah, whew. right. Okay. There's anger because you feel like you've been lied to and all of that. I mean, this is really this is I mean, if you really pick up on the story of Abraham, right, and he yep. leaves his father's household to mm-hmm. go to a land he knows it's not of when he leaves his father's household, he's leaving behind his father's religion. Like that's just part of what's oh, yeah. caught up in the culture of the of 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 that time. Mm-hmm. And so the land he knows not of, is not just, not just a place on a map somewhere. Right. Like the land he knows not of is a, is a, is a kind of landscape of faith mm-hmm. and, and an understanding of who God is and how we relate to God. You know, I even think of the, mo- the one of the most troubling stories in the old Testament is the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? And mm-hmm. God calling Abraham to sacrifice him. But I think that what that is, is actually, I mean, horrific if we take it literally. But I think that it's also is much more about this reorientation of Abraham's understanding of who God is and how God, not how Abraham relates to God, but how God relates to Abraham in a sense of saying, like, I don't need these kinds of sacrifices. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and so, and so, but think of all the disorientation that has to, it takes to get there. And I think when we're talking about, you know, moving towards a more expansive view of God and an understanding of how God moves in the world, it does feel like we're killing something very precious to us. Yes. Yes. And so I, it's so interesting you bring that up because lately, um, I, I was doing some work on that text and, um, what I came to was that, you know, so in that, in that, in that level of consciousness, Abraham was, was absolutely going to believe that God required him to make a sacrifice of his son. I mean, that's absolutely consistent with what people believe that God would do and that gods would do. Right. Yep. And so, um, I thought like the invitation to sacrifice his son and to take him all the way there to where he, he had to pull that knife up. Like God had to bring him all the way to the end of that way of thinking. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, it's exactly what you just said. I'm just saying it in a different way. But he had to, like, we need to go all the way to the end of a certain way of thinking if we're going to transcend that way of thinking into a mm-hmm. bigger one. And so then the ram is caught in the thicket, and then Abraham unties Isaac, and, and then you sort of can imagine the the maybe the meal that they shared afterwards and maybe the conversation that they had and um and then you're right like what 
how did that utterly change uh, Abraham's view of God? It must have been radical. Yeah, totally. Um, yep. But yep. we had to. But we had to go. He had to go through this extremely unsettling crisis. Yeah, I don't know anyone who's like progressed in their faith to a deeper understanding of who God mm-hmm. is and the the idea of God, Jesus' presence with us who hasn't gone through some deeply unsettling deconstruction in order to reconstruct. I mean, I mean this is literally the Christian story, right? Mm-hmm. You have to—the the old wineskins have to go away and you have to get new wineskins. You have to have death to get to resurrection. So mm-hmm. you have to—death— to new life, uh, and 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 there's a sense in which that's a literal truth that as Christians we believe in, but then there's also a sense in which that's a figurative thing that defines all aspects of our life. Absolutely, it's an archetype of life: birth, death, yep. resurrection. It's what we see in the seasons, in nature, in going to sleep and waking up. I mean, oh, um, okay. So I I really want to get to. Um, I hope this isn't an abrupt turn. I don't think it will be, but. I, because the story of adoption is such a big one in the book and in your life, would you sort of walk us through that? And you talked about the ectopic pregnancy, and you mentioned the adoption, but sort of walk us through that story, if you would. Yeah, so uh, my wife and I had always had conversations about uh, the possibility of adopting. But again, because we had a very suburban approach to life, it was going to be, well, first we're going to have a couple of our own biological children spaced two and a half years apart from Mm -hmm. each other, and then we're going to adopt. And it uh, it didn't turn out that way at all. Uh, We had difficulty getting pregnant with our first son, and then after that we had a lot of infertility, and that's when the ectopic pregnancy happened. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we revisited the idea and said, okay, well, maybe maybe God is calling us at this point to adopt. And so we uh, did the thing and interviewed a few agencies around town here. And then um, we eventually picked an agency that we really liked, a social worker, and uh, listed with them, you know, filled out all the paperwork, did all the home study stuff, did all, you know, put the profile book together. Um, and we were listed with them. And just after a year being them, we had to redo our home study. And then after that, my wife and I, we bought a new house and we moved. So we had to do our home study again. So now we're about 18 months into the process and, you know, the, the social workers at our house and we're talking and we just asked that, you know, so, so we haven't heard anything in terms of birth moms looking at our profile books or anything like that. And she said, well, honestly, because we're such a small agency, we, we haven't, we haven't actually done an adoption in 18 months. We're just like, are you kidding me? And that really, really hit us hard because we expected to wait in the process. They say, you know, for domestic adoptions, you're looking at about an 18 month wait. Um, and here we are at 18 months and they're like, yeah, we haven't even done one. Mm. So at that point, I mean, there's a couple of ways I could go here. I mean, do you want me to talk about the whole anxiety stuff? Do you want yeah. me to get into that? Yeah. Okay. So then, so then that hit my wife real hard. It was right around Thanksgiving at the, that time of year. I forget exactly what year that was, but um, uh, she, we were at my folks for Thanksgiving, and she, all weekend long, she said, "I just, I just, something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. I feel like what you feel right before you get on the stage and do it." give a big talk, you know, the Mm -hmm. butterflies in your stomach, sweaty hands, just Mm -hmm. like adrenaline coursing through her veins. And, uh, and so that continued on and, and it just, it got progressively worse. Uh, I call it, I called it the spiral. I mean, she just started spiraling downhill. Um, and it was the, am I always going to feel like this? What's wrong with me? Um, I, I'm so focused on all of these thoughts that are running through my head that are irrational, that I can't be a good mom. And because I can't be, don't feel like I'm being a good mom to our son. Like now that starts to spiral all of these other questions, which then lead to, I'm not a good wife, which then leads to like, are you going to want to stay with me? 
me type thing. Like it just, it went down to a deep place and she started to suffer through insomnia. So we're going on two, three nights, uh, four nights with absolutely no sleep whatsoever. And I mean, we had her like tranquilized. I mean, she, we had taken her to the doctor and gotten Ambien and gotten on some antidepressants and gotten, I mean, you know, a couple glasses of wine. And I mean, like, we told one doctor every you know melatonin valerium root like all of it right and we told one doctor and he's like how are you still awake and her knees like while we're telling her her, her knees are bouncing because yeah. she's just so amped mm-hmm. um and that, i mean that was that was that was dark that mm-hmm. that really was dark um I, 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 lay, I talk about it in the book. I lay in bed next to my wife and I'd just be holding her and I'd put my hands on her chest and just try to apply pressure to, to calm her down. And at night, you know, it's two, three, four in the morning and I'd hear, I'd, I'd feel her. You know, you can tell when somebody starts to fall asleep and you get that rhythm of breathing. It's a little deeper and slower. Yeah. She would do that and then her whole body would just jerk herself back awake. Like it was mm-hmm. just like the shot of adrenaline would go through and jerk awake. And that would happen over and over again all through the night. Um, and so that, that took a long time to, you know, we, had, we did counseling. We did, you know, got on antidepressants and all of that sort of stuff. And yeah, it was just really, really hard. In the midst of this, we're trying to go through the adoption and we, a couple of months, it took us a couple of months to get our, get, get everything under our feet with that. And then, um, we listed with an adoption agency up in Michigan on top of the one we were working at here in Indiana that didn't. We were with them for about another year and nothing happened. We had heard about an adoption agency down – it wasn't even an agency, a consulting agency down in, in Georgia um, that was more expensive but it had really good – you know, the really fast, really great results. And so we started working with them and uh, it was December of 2000 and uh, – I got to do the math. 16 I think it was. Mm-hmm. Is that right? 15? I don't even know. Man, Do you have I, this problem where years all just start oh, to? Oh yeah, especially. I just I don't want to be weird, but the older I get, the more I just don't know. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it. I think it. No, it wasn't 2015. I, th- I, I think. I just based on our relate. Like I've known you since 15, I think, and so I would say it's probably not 15, but yeah, I want to say 16. it was 2016. I don't even know. Anyways, anyways. Uh, so we we listed with this agency in December, and then in January we got a phone call that we had been matched with uh, a child, and so birth mother had picked us, uh, and it was really it was really pretty profound for us. Uh, we got the phone call on Sunday night. I remember that. And the next day was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and uh, you know it was a, there was all the news was going on, you know about. Uh, uh, police shootings and all of this sort of mm-hmm. stuff and you know the phone call came you've been matched with uh, a birth mother's picked you and she's uh, expected to deliver a african-american boy in february mm-hmm. uh, do you want do you, are you ready for this you know and uh, we my wife and i we had a, maybe a 10 minute conversation and we were just like yes we are and i remember going to bed that night going oh my good like th- thinking literally tomorrow is martin luther king jr day mm-hmm that day will never be the same for me again. Mm-hmm. And I, and I began to think through like, oh, I have one son and he's white and I'm going to have another son and he's black and I'm going to have to parent them and, and have conversations with the one that I will never have to have with the other. Mm-hmm. And that began to open my eyes. I mean, that just took us down a whole nother rabbit hole of learning and listening about what it means to be black in America. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah. Now, to finish out the adoption story, uh, we got the call on February 19 that the birth mother was going into labor. Um, and then about three hours later, we got the call that a uh, healthy baby girl was born. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so have no idea how two ultrasounds confirmed yeah. that something was there that was not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so ended up with a, uh, a beautiful African-American yeah. daughter. Wow. Well, I have some, I mean, so many questions. Um, the, oh, I, and I do want to ask you more about what it's like to be a white father of an African-American yeah. daughter. Cause I think there's lots of feelings and thoughts around that, um, mm-hmm. from lots of different people. So I want to hear your feelings and thoughts, but I do want to like, as one Enneagram three to another Enneagram three, I sort of want to notice something even, and I think it's very typical, but even as you sort of talk through, um, you talk through the experience of waiting and the different adoption agencies and your wife's anxiety. What, what strikes me as it's like you, you, you mainly described it from the point of view as you dealing with your wife's anxiety. And that's exactly how I would have, I mean, exactly. And I, that is how I live my life with my wife when, but it also, and I'm not, I'm not, please hear me. I'm, I'm just noticing yeah. it because I do it. It's like on, like, how have you had to even notice that perhaps I am, I am reacting to more of like my wife's reaction to this than I am really getting in touch with how I feel. And I know it's connected. Oh, I totally. Know, there, there's no way to, to pull those apart. Um, but but how have you even started to learn to say, I can feel feelings about how my wife is feeling and I need to, and I and need to be very connected to that, obviously when it's so serious, right? Yeah. But I also need to locate my own anger, my own disappointment, my own struggle. How have you learned that? And that's one hell of a question. So feel free yeah, to yeah, say, that's great. Thanks, maybe, Steve. I really yeah. appreciate that. Let's, let's, <laughs> maybe that's I'm, the I'm going to go find a couch. I'm just going to go find a couch and lay down right now. <laughs> no, um, you know what I mean though, right? I mean, cause no, I'm, no, I'm right totally. there with well, you. I am a, as a, as a three, my, my instinct is, uh, is to, to step up, right. To step mm-hmm. up to whatever mm-hmm. the situation needs and to yeah. perform in the moment. Yeah. And so my wife actually gave me a lot of, I mean, in some ways it was the Enneagram three gift where I get to perform now. I get to take, yep. I, I, I have a situation in which I get to con- try to control it and do all of that sort of stuff. And, uh, uh, it took me a long time to get back to, um, uh, what my feelings were. So let's see, that, that probably happened to, so I, I, we got mad, like I said, we got matched at the end of January in February. I was leading a retreat up in Michigan or up in Ontario for some pastors. And we were, I was leading it with a group of people and we were having a conversation about authentic faith and, um, uh, spiritual disciplines and all of that sort of stuff in, in the life of a pastor. And so I was doing this presentation with a friend of mine and then we gave the pastors some assignment to do at their tables or whatever. And then she and I were having a conversation. Okay, what do we want to do next? And we were feeling a little bit stuck in the talk and it wasn't quite working the way we wanted it to. And she's like, well, how about this? How about I just coach you on an aspect of, uh, how you're using the spiritual disciplines in your life? And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Okay, let's do that. So we're up there in front of, I don't know, 30 pastors and she starts coaching me and just asking me questions. And she's like, so, so tell me, you know, about your, your spiritual disciplines. And so I list off some stuff and she goes, yeah, I noticed you didn't really talk about prayer a whole lot. You know, what's prayer look like for you? 
And like all of a sudden I felt like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> and I was just like, well, to be honest, like I haven't had much of a prayer life lately. Yeah. And she said, why not? I said, it's just been hard. She said, well, why? And I said, well, and they're like, now I'm just like, I'm, I am just full blown caught. I'm just like, cause I'm angry at God. Yeah, yeah. Like I had to like, and so here I am up in front and I'm like, I'm, I'm now seeing it for the first time. Like I'm angry at God and yes, our prayers have been answered and we've now been matched with a child and the child could be born. I mean, it was literally like a week later that uh, my daughter was born. And so it was just like, um, I'm still angry. Mm-hmm. Like, and I haven't processed that at all. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go like, go back and start going, okay, I, what do I do with this anger? How has it been showing up? How have I, how have I stuffed it under the rug? Um, and, and what do I want to say? Um, yeah. so, so it, 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 there's probably about a year's gap between what happened with my wife and, um, me figuring out that I was actually angry. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I get that all the way down to the ground though, because I think it's number one is hard. You know, it's, 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 it's really, it's hard to locate your own anger, but also I think you said it so well, Enneagram threes, when we are given the opportunity to sort of step up and be something and, and perform in a certain way, it is, it is a gift that we bring for sure. It's not all shadow, but it's so tempting just to live there, you know, and right. just, just keep right. doing that and to feel, even if it's hard to feel affirmed in our own in our own personality to, you know, to bring that stuff. So I get it, man. I, I think it does take a long time to locate the anger um, and then to be sort of okay with even having it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot easier to tell people, you can be you can be angry with God, right? I mean, I bet you've done right. that a million times. Um, so many times. It's okay to fail. Um, it's not okay for me to fail. <laughs> But, <laughs> I was just thinking that I was you know, like, as a three, it is not okay to no. fail or at least I, I'll fail, but it better be in, in, in private. And then you'll see the outworkings of my success from my failure. That's exactly. what I'll make. <laughs> I'll make it. Tr- Dude. Uh, I, I know you like you too, but, um, Bono's song, the showman, um, yep. on, on the most, I mean, that's such an Enneagram three song, but, um, there's one line in it. This is, you know, we, we hope our heartache will chart, you know? So like yeah, totally. even the, even the failures, we're, we're going to turn that into a way of looking good, but, right. um, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had, um, so some of the folks that I work with on our staff, um, I like to use this phrase, try, fail, learn, right? I don't think I came up with it, but if you try something and, 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 and you fail, that's fine. Let's just learn something. Right. And I say it all the time. Right. And so, um, but one of them busted me probably three months ago. And she said, you, you, you give, you give us lots and lots of freedom to fail, but you don't give yourself any freedom to fail. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh gosh. Okay. So there was my couch experience. There was my totally, totally. I I talked about it in my, now we're talking more about Enneagram than the book, but that's all right. In my first book, I had to talk about this experience where I was asked, where do you take risks? And I had Mm -hmm. to admit, like, I don't take risks because I yeah. don't really want to fail. What I do is I take really calculated yes. assessments of a situation that I can, I know I can handle that. And to some, it might look like a risk, but I know how it's not a risk. And I know that I'll be successful either way. For sure. Right. Oh, so it's gosh. not a risk. There's no yeah. risk involved. No, it's, it's curated. Like you said. Yep. Totally. Okay. So tell me, I mean, back to the book and back to the journey of adoption, tell me what it has been like and what you have learned about being, again, a white father to um, an African-American child? 
Yeah, I think, you know, part of it, uh, our daughter's three right now, so we're still very much in the learning process. But even in just as a, in, in taking care of her, we've we've gotten glimpses into a culture that, you know, we would say, oh, yeah, you know, they're they're American. Well, yeah, but it's a culture that we really don't understand that exists within America. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, is we learn how to care for Evelyn's hair. Yeah. Yeah. Right? She's got this beautiful, curly hair. But you have to care for it in a completely different way, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. not just you run a brush through it or you shampoo it. It, the, 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 it. Just learning how to care for it and learning the different styles of hair and why why, why African-American girls braid their hair or put them in these puffs, right? Because they're protective. They protect the hair. It's a protective hairstyle. Like learning all of that stuff uh, so that we can care for our daughter has been eye-opening because now all of a sudden we understand why there's a culture around barbershops and salons, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, for sure. Sure. Like all of a sudden we get my wife took a took her to get her hair braided a few uh, about six weeks no oh, about two months ago, and she talked about just coming back and just the culture of the salon like mm-hmm. oh now we get it now we know why there's all these movies on black women hair or why you know there's whole movies that take place around barber shops and all this is just a completely different kind of care process and uh, and and there's a culture built up around it. Um, We've learned different things, you know, just about some of the ideas of privilege that exist yeah. and that are realities. Um, you know, so as she thinks about dance and she, my daughter loves to dance and we've looked into dance like nude leggings primarily. It wasn't until just a two, three years ago that nude leggings came in black nude. Right. Like yeah, they're right. always just nude white was nude. just the, the white. It was nude. white. Yeah. yeah. White nude. Yeah. Right. And if a black girl puts on white nude leggings, she looks like she has white legs. It's just that, you know, like, so it's just these, so what they would have to do is buy those white leggings and dye them. And so we're learning all about those things, like these kinds of small little privileges that we have as white folks that we don't even take into consideration. And then one of the things that I've just been doing is, you know, making sure that I, as a father of a black daughter, am not limiting what I read to mm-hmm. white people. Mm-hmm. So I want her to, when she's 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, and she looks at my bookshelf, does she say that like she's got, she sees representation, right? So she sees people like, oh, dad was reading black folks. Dad was reading about what, you know, history. Dad was reading theology from other sides of, mm-hmm. or from other cultures and other perspectives. Like I want her to see that. I want her to see herself represented there because she's already going to be the out, the one who's outside of it. Like this is just what we've come to realize is that she is the only black child in, in our family. And then in both of our extended families. So she's growing up in a very white world in which she will not see a mirror for herself. Mm -hmm. And so as much as we can do to find mirrors, whether that's, you know, the people who author books that I'm reading, or mirrors in the movies that we watch or mirrors in the books that we read to her right now. Um, you know, I've talked about this with my friend Matthew Paul Turner who's got a couple of children's books out and they're great. And in two of them, the lead, char- the lead character, the girl who's in the illustrations is black. I, can I tell you how much I love those books? 
books. Mm-hmm. Because when we look at those books and we read those words, my daughter looks and sees a girl that looks just like her. Yeah. It's the same, you know, the hair is braided in some of the same ways and they pull them back in a pony in the same way. Like it, it looks like my daughter. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that. And it's super important. So we've become cognizant of that. And then my wife and I have just had conversations about, you know, uh, what do we need to do to make sure that it's not just in books and movies and all this, but there's actually people involved in our life who are black and who can take her under her wing, under their wing and, and teach her things that we can't teach her and have conversations with her that, that maybe we're there and we're listening to, but that we don't, we can't give because we don't have that firsthand experience, right? Like yeah. that's really important to us. And it's really important for us to, to for her to see people in positions of authority. So whether that's as pastors or doctors or teachers and positions of, of significant authority that are, that are black. So she really does grow up thinking I can do anything that I want. Yeah. Well, it's just, what a learning curve. And, um, do, do you, have you encountered any judgment from folks either from, I don't know, just the weird judgment of like, what are you doing? White family, you know, um, uh, from folks that maybe think that you shouldn't have adopted a, a black child. I mean, have, have you gotten any of that stuff? No, no, we haven't, which we're really grateful for. Now we know people who, you know, we have friends in town who have also, uh, had a transracial adoption and they definitely have had stuff in their family. We, mm-hmm. we haven't, and we don't have anybody. And, and here's what I think. I think what's true in America is the most people, most people aren't in, like racist on an individual basis. Right? Right, right. Like I think, I think we're kind of moving beyond that. Uh, what I do think is that a lot of people are blind to the systemic realities. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, in terms of, of opportunities, in terms of, you know, when my, so for example, my daughter's three right now. So she's full on three. I mean, defiant and, (laughs) and loud and boisterous and all of a sudden will break into song or start screaming. Like if you're in the line at the grocery store and she grabs something and you're like, no, you can't have that. And you take it out of her hand and put it back. And then she just goes into meltdown mode. Like because I'll just I'm gonna be completely honest. I'm gonna be completely honest here, and this is gonna put me in a bad light. But this is what this is what sometimes happens in me is like there's the stereotype of the loud black person, right? Oh, and so some you, sure. it, sometimes you go like, oh, is that because? And then you're just like, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. But 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 that but that we would never say that about a white kid, right? Like, oh, there's a loud white kid. Like we'd never say that about that, right? But that stereotype is ingrained within us. And I think there's a, an uncomfortability for white folks to even acknowledge like that exists within us. And that's what needs to be uprooted. So maybe we don't say anything. Maybe we don't uh, uh, give that side-eyed glance, but maybe we just think it, mm-hmm. right? And we never voice it, but we think it. And we have to take those thoughts out. We have to be honest that those thoughts exist and then we have to root them out. And then we have to look like, where did that come from? Yeah. Why, yeah. why did that label happen? And, 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 and that's where we can begin to see that, oh no, there's some cultural and systemic things like that. That type of stereotype exists because it was, it was curated within our culture to make it easier to hold down a particular group of people and treat them as inferior. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, well, I think it's interesting that, 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 you know, the point that you make that, gosh, some of the systemic attitudes, um, that maybe you didn't even think you had are coming to light as, as a result of this journey. And I think, man, what a, 
what a journey and one that will continue right for right your right. entire life um yeah we're constantly going to be learning i mean i mean even when you think about systemic stuff like this is something i've thought about and my wife and i have been like by our very zip code mm-hmm. we have largely separated ourselves from people who look like my daughter sure yeah now we moved here because the church was here and all of that sort of stuff but yeah that mm-hmm. exists yeah like this place is like 84 86% white mm-hmm. yeah yeah that, that, that type of thing doesn't happen by accident. Right. So right. that's something that we have to confront and think about. What does that yeah. mean? How do we choose where we live? All of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Man. What a journey. Um, oh, man. I, I, um, I love this book and I love this conversation, Nate. I wish we had more time. Um, but everybody, the, the book is called more than you can handle when life's overwhelming pain meets God's overcoming grace, Nate Pyle. And I, I think this is, this is a great one. Um, again, for anyone who is dealing with any kind of pain, suffering, loss, grief, but also people maybe who are, uh, having a crisis of faith and sort of how do you move through, uh, the idea of of doubt and mystery and 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 overcoming certainty and getting to know a God that meets us really where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so Nate, thanks so much, man. Um, I will continue to um, talk about this book and um, and even in my own my own community, my own church, it's a book that I can I can really recommend to folks. So thanks for the gift of writing it and the gift of. Uh, the life experience that you had to live through, painful as it was, to write a book like this. So. Yeah, well, thanks. Appreciate that, Steve. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to talk with you. I wish we uh, we li- wish our polices lived a little closer together. Well, I gotta I gotta find my way down there because, of course, Matt Bays is right there too, and, and he is. You know, at least like you, I still have never been face to face with with Matt, and I love that. Have you guy. not? No. Uh, at least you and I have had a little face to face time at the festival. Uh, yeah, for faith and writing, but um, yeah. So I I just got to find a way to 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 get down there and just have fun with you guys. That is way Absolutely. overdue. Absolutely, absolutely. We got so, a room for you if you come down. All right. Uh, all right, Nate. Thanks so much, buddy. Um, again, everybody, more than you can handle. Nate Pyle, uh, get into it. It's so good. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Nate. Thanks, Steve. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.